0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview podcast.
1: Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Theresa May's shock announcement of a British general election in June. Dennis Staunton, our London editor, on what this all means for Brexit and British politics. In France, the election first round this weekend is now emerging as a tantalising four-horse race possibility now is of a second-round race between the hard left and hard right. I'll be asking Paris correspondent Lara Marlowe what happens then. And in Turkey, the victory of President Erdogan in his power-grab constitutional referendum appears to have confirmed the relentless rise of the autocrat on the world stage. Stephen Starr will be talking to me from Istanbul.
2: I have just chaired a meeting of the cabinet
0: where we agreed that the government should call a general election. To be held on
1: the 8th of June. Theresa May's shock announcement of a British general election appears to be an attempt to secure herself a comfortable majority for her Brexit negotiations and policy, a policy which has divided her party and appears to divide her cabinet. It's a risky strategy, Dennis Staunton. Presumably, with Labour in the state that it's in, she will have no difficulty adding to the Tory seat tally. But is there any guarantee that the new Tories will bolster her position?
0: It's not quite clear. And I think, as you say, the political landscape is looking good for her. Some polls put uh, the Conservatives more than 20 points ahead of Labour. And as long as Jeremy Corbyn remains as leader, and there's obviously no prospect of him being dumped as leader in the next six weeks, then uh, Labour is carrying the burden of uh, an extremely unpopular leader going into the election. Uh, The Conservatives do have to worry, though, about the Liberal Democrats. They won 25 seats from the Liberal Democrats in the last election in 2015. And some of those seats, uh, many of them, in fact, are likely to go back to the Liberal Democrats, who are resurgent in the wake of Brexit because they're the only party that has a very clear remain position on, uh, on the EU referendum and its aftermath. In answer to your question about whether these people are likely to bolster her or not, that's not clear. It does obviously depend to some extent on candidate selection. But because her majority is so slender right now, she has very little room for manoeuvre and she's been looking over her shoulder at her right flank, this group of about 80 ultra uh, Brexiteer MPs who she effectively has to clear everything with as she goes through these negotiations. Now, until now, these have been very supportive of her, including the other week when she... uh, made a little shuffle while she was in Saudi Arabia and sounded a bit softer about how uh, what she's looking for from the negotiations. In other words, she suggested that uh, there would indeed need to be a transitional arrangement after Britain leaves the European Union, and that some... Uh, aspects of EU membership would likely continue, like free movement uh, for a period and even possibly the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human of Justice, rather the European Court of Justice, which she's been uh, saying she wants to have that ended. So they've been quite sanguine about this until now. But obviously once you get to the point where she's making hard compromises, that could be more difficult. So if she has a, a bigger majority, if she doesn't have the prospect of going into an election a few months after she makes... Uh, the Brexit deal, then she could perhaps have room to uh, even form some alliances with moderate Labour MPs to get the Brexit deal through, and then hope to to deal with her own party in the years prior to the election that would come afterwards, and that would now be scheduled for 2022 rather than 2020.
1: If, if she was to increase her majority, say, to 80 or so, do we know which way uh, the the new Tories are likely to go? Are are there assessments of their candidates and and, and what what their politics are?
0: No, it's pretty clear that the Conservative Party has become uh, steadily more Eurosceptic through each election cycle for the last uh, number of years, and that's a trend that's likely to continue, and particularly in a way with the vanquishing of the Cameron-Osborne Economic liberal wing of the Conservative Party by Theresa May after she became Prime Minister. So it is likely that uh, that the the next intake of Conservative MPs will also be Eurosceptics. They will certainly be committed to Brexit and to, to Britain leaving the European Union. But at the same time, they uh, they'll also be in a sense committed to her. She'll have the mandate in that she's going to. She would be the person who has won them their election. And so, in that sense, she might have, uh, by virtue of loyalty, and by virtue of the fact that she has uh, would have won the election, on the basis of saying, "I can be trusted to negotiate Brexit in the best interests of the country," and so uh, you you know you ought to uh, to listen uh, with some uh, respect to uh, to what I'm saying. So, I I think you know we know that there'll be Brexiteers. We don't know that much beyond that as to. You know how they would behave if once it comes down to the hard negotiations.
1: I presume that the, the Commons was rather taken aback. She will need two thirds of the Commons, though, to, in order to get the general election through under under recent legislation.
0: Yes, you'll need that, and she's having uh, she's introducing the motion tomorrow. uh, But it's pretty clear that uh, the opposition parties will support it. Uh, She effectively called Labour's bluff and uh, suggested that they would uh, be running scared of an election if they were to vote against it. So the, uh, the expectation at Westminster is that that vote Uh, will succeed tomorrow, and then she uh, has to dissolve Parliament 25 working days, at least 25 working days before calling the election. So that would uh, take us to May the 3rd, she would dissolve Parliament at that stage, and then the election would happen on the 8th of June.
1: Talking about expectations, what about expectations? You've mentioned Labour and the Lib Dems. What about expectations for UKIP?
0: UKIP has been falling apart. It's chosen the moment of its greatest triumph to destroy itself in a sort of frenzy of internal hatred and feuding. Uh, They've lost their only uh, member of parliament, Douglas Carswell. He resigned the party whip a few weeks ago. They've also lost uh, another Conservative defector, Mark Reckless, in the Assembly in Wales. The new leader, Paul Nuttall, hasn't uh, made much of an impression. And uh, Nigel Farage has really retreated into a media career. So I think that uh, Theresa May, Uh, doesn't have too much to worry about where UKIP is concerned, and also particularly given that she's presenting herself as the keeper of the Brexit flame. So she doesn't have too much to worry about. Labour might have to worry in some of its uh, north of England constituencies. But once again, the UKIP organisation is so weak that uh, that it's not clear that they're likely to make that uh, longed-for breakthrough this time. And the electoral system, uh, the the first-past-the-post electoral system, does tend to discriminate against smaller parties.
1: And, of course, this also means an election in Northern Ireland for for the Commons position. It's hardly conducive to a deal being done between now and then by the parties uh, um, of the the Northern Ireland Assembly.
0: No, and uh, Arlene Foster, the uh, leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, in responding to Theresa May's announcement, said that the election in Northern Ireland would be about preserving the union, and that uh, a vote for the DUP was the only way to do that. So, obviously, the DUP will be doing its best to uh, to regain some of the ground that it lost uh, after that scare when Sinn Féin came within 1,200 votes of overtaking it as the uh, as the biggest party in the recent assembly elections. And so, uh, it's uh, as you say, it doesn't make it easier for either Sinn Féin or the DUP to compromise. And it remains to be seen what James Brokenshire, the Northern Ireland Secretary, will do, whether he tries to extend the period of negotiations, which is already extended beyond Easter, if he extends those even further to take account of the elections. We're expecting a statement from him sometime in the next couple of days.
1: And finally, what does it say about uh, the prospect of beginning negotiations with the European Union? I presume that they're, they're now put off until after the election,
0: It's probably not going to make that much difference because uh, the... Uh, The negotiating guidelines will be agreed by the European Council at uh, the end of April, and then they have to go uh, back to the uh, European Commission to uh, put some flesh on the bones in terms of a detailed timetable. There wasn't any great expectation that much was going to happen before June in any case. And so the officials and the government uh, here in Britain will continue to operate. They'll continue to have their contacts and to prepare for the negotiations. And so I think the, uh, the timetable is not likely to be affected too greatly because uh, the election will be happening really uh, at the very start of the negotiations and not all that much was expected to happen during the summer in any case. So uh, so I, I think uh, that shouldn't really be affected and uh, Downing Street has made clear that there's no question of changing the timetable. The Article 50 timetable means that Britain will leave the European Union at the end of March in 2019.
1: Thank you, Dennis. When we come back, I'll be talking to Lara Marlowe about the tantalising French election. Hi, I'm Kathy Sheridan, the host of the award-winning Women's Podcast. It's a twice-weekly look at the world from a female perspective full of feminism, humour, politics, sex, storytelling, relationships and more. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find us on irishtimes.com, forward slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. The surprise late surge in the opinion polls by hard-left candidate Jean-Luc Mélenchon has galvanised the French election. It had been assumed that the race had become a two-horse contest between the centrist ex-banker Emmanuel Macron and the National Front's Marine Le Pen. François Fillon, the Gaullist, is also in the running. Lara Marlowe, we now have a four-way contest for the top two places in Sunday's first round.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, And any two of the four could make it to the runoff. So you could have any combination. You could have Marine Le Pen, uh, Emmanuel Macron, as we thought, or you could have Marine Le Pen against Fillon or against Mélenchon or Macron against any of the three and so on and so forth. Uh, So it's total uncertainty, and this is unprecedented in modern French history.
1: I think I bumped into you the other day, and I said, of course, the French election was all... All but over, and that it was a straightforward <laughs> race between Macron and Le Pen. And certainly yes, hasn't and turned I think out you up.
2: remember, Patty, that I said I wouldn't be so sure.
1: Well, no, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, who is Mélenchon, and why has his vote surged?
2: Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is a former French senator. He's a member of the European Parliament. Uh, His vote has surged mainly because he's a brilliant orator. He entertains people. Uh, He really has a way with words. He's the one who coined the phrase, the shyness of gazelles, uh, regarding the way that journalists uh, were dealing with the scandals involving Marine Le Pen and François Fillon. Uh, He's extremely witty, extremely clever. Uh, But he also, on the other hand, has policies which really worry people. For example, he wants France to join the Bolivarian Alliance, which is a South American alliance of Cuba, Venezuela, and Bolivia. And, uh, you know, people are joking he'd rather be allied with, with Cuba and Venezuela, which are, are basically bankrupted, uh, than, you know, with France's old allies with Germany, which he doesn't like, uh, America, and so on and so forth. Um, so he, he has a, a real weakness <clears throat> for Latin American dictators. Uh, he held a memorial for Castro uh, when when Castro died last November. He held a memorial for Hugo Chavez, the late uh, populist Venezuelan leader uh and his his program is uh basically to print money uh it would cost 270 billion euro uh he would uh, make the retirement age 60 again. He would reduce the working week, uh, do away with a lot of the overtime and so on. That has, has made the 35 hour week slip. He'd bring it back to 35 hours, absolute maximum, no matter what, and move towards 32 hours a week, uh, and, and so on and so forth. For his social policies, he's, he's quite similar to Marine Le Pen, it must be said. Um, but his, his foreign policies worry people. He's, it's interesting, as he's risen in the polls, he seems to be very surprised by his own um, breakthrough in the polls. And he's kind of stopped talking about Cuba and, and Venezuela. I think he knows it, it upsets people. Uh, but he's, he's very popular, and he could, we could see Mélenchon, uh, Le Pen, far left and far right Facing each other off in the runoff on, and, on May seventh.
1: And where do the centrist voters vote then? What are the polls saying if it did mm-hmm. if it did turn out that way?
2: Well, I, I was at Macron's last big rally last night, and I was asking all of them because they are the centrist voters par excellence. Uh, the, the, those who like Macron for his social policies, a lot would vote for Mélenchon because he's from the the left, and so the people who've come from the left to Macron would vote for Mélenchon. Um, but a, a lot of others said they would just abstain, and but the polls show actually that Mélenchon would defeat Marine Le Pen. Any of the other three candidates would defeat Marine Le Pen in the second round. And but that's according to the polls. And if she does come out on top this coming Sunday, she will have uh, momentum, and it's anything is possible.
1: Now you you were saying you were at the Macron rally in Bercy on 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 Monday night. Is, Is he still generating the same crowds and the same level of enthusiasm?
2: people there, which is four times as many as Marine Le Pen got the same evening later on the same day. Uh, so yes, he's generating crowd. It's it's kind of subdued. I mean, they, they cheered a lot. He's not actually a brilliant orator. Uh, he comes, It was a bit like a big Boy Scout jamboree. It's, it was very wholesome, and very good. Uh, and as you know, Patty, good people can sometimes be a, a little bit boring. Um, but he's his heart he at the same time he's he's very brave i mean it's very brave these days to defend the european union because the european union is not popular these days it's very brave in france to defend refugees and migrants. Uh, Marine Le Pen on the same day uh, was, was saying that, that immigrants were the source of all problems in France. And Emmanuel Macron, although he didn't uh, go into much detail, has praised Angela Merkel for welcoming refugees to Germany. And he says France must be an open country and it must show humanity and solidarity with people who are suffering. So I, I think he, he's very brave. He's very good. Um, the question is, will France prefer one of the other three candidates who all have a whiff of sulfur about them, or will they prefer Emmanuel the Good?
1: Well, talking about a whiff of sulfur, uh, there's been attempts to suggest that Macron has got um, his own problems, uh, hidden away, bank accounts abroad, money concealed from the taxman. Is Is that plausible, and, and is it going down at all with the, with the voters?
2: Fionn people are the ones who make the most of his alleged corruption. For example, when he was at um, the economy, when he was the economy minister, he spent his entire entertainment allowance uh, inviting people to lunch, uh, and he spent a year's allowance in eight months, and the right, the conservatives are accusing him of having benefited from his position as a minister to campaign, although at that point he, he probably didn't even know he would be a candidate. It, it's not actually terribly impressive compared with what Fion did and and the more than a million euro that that uh, fion's wife and children were paid and and the repeated lies he told about it, which have proven been proven to be lies. I mean, one thing is, is true. Uh, Emmanuel Macron was a banker at the Banque Rothschild for four years before he w- went to the 80s to be Francois Hollande's economic advisor. And he earned over 3 million euros during those four years. And now he declares a, a net wealth of about 300,000 euros. So where did all that money go? He says he invested it in, in property. Now, it's not the way the french system works you don't have to give all of the details and so on so it's not clear does he own a lot of property that's lost value um, or he's he's invested in refurbishing and renovating these properties so he he doesn't he's in debt presumably it's it's not really clear but frankly it's not really a huge issue i think that if if the Conservatives had the dirt on, on Macron, we, we would have heard it by now. Although, you know, something could come out between the, the two rounds before the second round that I don't at all exclude that we could have more scandal and, and sensation uh, as we have had all through this campaign.
1: And finally, I just want to ask you about Marine Le Pen. It seemed last night that she shifted to the right, that she said she would introduce more or less a full ban on immigration. And her campaign to clean up the extremist uh, image of the National Front has not gone altogether uh, the way she might have planned. Is she in danger of losing ground in the next few days?
2: Well, she's lost a lot of ground. She was up to 28% in opinion polls, and she's down to 22%. So she's lost six percentage points from her high in, in the polls and you know she she and, and Macron are like a yo-yo going one on top and then the other back and forth back and forth uh, but she has lost some ground I mean one theory is that The the, the majority, almost two-thirds, no, actually almost three-quarters of the French want to keep the euro as their currency. And Marine Le Pen says she's determined to go back to the French franc. She stopped talking about that. She didn't even mention it last night. And as you said, she's doubling down on immigration. Uh, She says she will immediately stop all legal immigration she's not even talking about illegal immigration um, the, the moment she is elected she'll do it by decree and then she will once once she's got her bearings and figured out exactly how many people are involved and so on she would she would allow something like 10,000 people a year whereas there is about 230,000 coming in every year to France And this will, of course, create all kinds of problems in the labor market because they won't have construction workers and they won't have nannies and and cleaning ladies and and this sort of thing. But that's what she says. And and she also says that if she had... um been in power, Mohamed Mera, you remember the the, uh, Franco-Algerian who killed seven people back in 2012, he wouldn't have happened. She said, if I'd been in power, the terrorist uh, at the Bataclan, you remember uh, November of 2015 when 130 people were killed in Paris. she said that wouldn't have happened because they were all, well, most of them were were the children of immigrants. Uh, and, And this has caused some controversy today. Le Monde's editorial this afternoon is saying that she's she's basically exploiting tragedy and suffering for her own uh, electoral benefit, so it could back you know create a backlash against her but she yes she she's swung to the right for example uh, the audience last night at her rally were chanting la France au français French for the French uh, and now they had been in the habit of saying on est chez nous this is our home or our homeland uh, but France for the French it really goes way back to the days of Jean-Marie Le Pen and, and it has that kind of nasty, intolerant edge to it.
1: Thank you very much, Lara. Turkey's referendum has produced a close but disputed result, but a decided win for President Recep Erdogan. It fulfils a ten-year wish of his to turn the country into a presidential system. The Guardian has talked to Turkey now as a sultanate Erdogan will be able to assume huge powers, dispensing with the Prime Minister and much by way of parliamentary checks and balances, and appointing judges to consolidate his personal power. The opposition is going to contest the election. What is their case, Stephen, and and what prospects uh, do they have in appealing to institutions uh, like the Constitutional Court, which Erdogan basically has under his control?
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's three main issues that the opposition uh, are claiming. Uh, that led to the referendum not being totally free and fair. the first issue is that, the biggest issue is that uh, about an hour before uh, voting ended on Sunday, the uh, Supreme Electoral Board decided that it would accept ballots that did not have have official uh, seals. Uh, Why this happened, you know, we're still waiting to hear uh, what the reasons for that were. There's some rumors going around that uh, the government, and it's only rumors they need to be careful about saying so, that the government felt that because the vote was so tight that they enacted something to to ensure that uh, that, that they would uh, secure a, a favorable outcome for them. Uh, the second issue is that uh, there were some observers uh, restricted from accessing uh, polling booths in the Southeast and in other parts of the country, according to uh international observers uh from the osce Uh, and the third issue which is for particularly for us journalists is that uh, the only source of the actual polling count on sunday that we had was from the state news agency now in the past and previous elections and and the referendum there were a number of independent media outlets that were giving their own figures as they came in they had their own journalists and correspondents at polling stations right around the country so they had an independent sense of of what was happening Uh, on sunday that wasn't the case at all And uh, the the, the crux of that issue is that uh, the state news agency was giving a count uh, above uh, what the uh, political parties were receiving. So, for example, when the the state news agency was saying that 90% of the ballots had been opened uh, and counted, that the opposition parties are saying that they had received only 60% of the open ballots. So these are all the the main issues that they're contesting. And as you mentioned, uh, I mean, the the first point of Port of call is to uh, make an appeal to the Supreme uh, Electoral Board. Likelihood is that that would be rejected, and next they will attempt to go to the constitutional court uh, that also is an issue, uh, and particularly in, in regards to the Supreme Electoral Council. Uh, in uh, following the failed coup last July, uh, the three members of that board uh, were fired from their jobs. So you know, it seems that it seems that the that this referendum is, is is sewn up, and uh, we'll see no further changes to the the result.
1: And we may end up indeed in the European courts, but it's difficult to see how the European Court of Human Rights could order order another election.
3: Yeah, speaking to some some analysts who've been here for for decades, they are suggesting that uh, you know it it for it to get that far would take a number of years before that would happen, and of course you know by that time it comes around there will be or uh, expected to be a, a presidential election two years from now. So what it's likely to happen is that you would you know see a presidential election before I, this issue uh, would appear before the European Court of Human Rights if it were to get that far at all.
1: Now, I, I gather there's, there's been some street protests, but one does also get a sense uh, from international reports that the opposition forces are, are demoralized and to some extent defanged by the repression that has gone on since the attempted coup. Yeah, well, the fact that
3: you know most independent media outlets have been closed or restricted or are afraid or, or actually you know, conducting self-censorship And also the fact that much of the political opposition, at least in terms of the the Kurdish uh, uh, parties, uh, have been imprisoned or have cases against them. Uh, You know, there's certainly a feeling that uh, there's not much, uh, much, much going to change uh, at all. But this is, you know, it it happened even before last uh, July's coup that there was a crackdown on independent media outlets. And uh, it, it became more severe uh, since then, you know, over 100,000 people have been fired from their jobs. And I spoke to some people uh, at a protest last night uh, who wouldn't give their names because they were civil servants. They were afraid to, uh, to, to, to give their reasons why they felt that uh, it was legitimate to, to protest uh, Sunday's result. But as you mentioned, there were quite a few protests in districts of Istanbul and in Ankara and elsewhere in the country that voted against the proposed uh, changes. Um, th- several thousand, several thousand people. It gives a sense, really, I think, that Turkey is a very, very divided country. And, uh, and again, as you mentioned, the, opposite, the political opposition and plus the what's left of the independent media, you know, and particularly during the campaign as well, they had such a such a slender voice. You know, their, their appearance time on television was was minuscule compared to what the government and what Tayyip Erdogan had. So there was even before we got the result, there was a sense that they were definitely fighting a, an, an uphill battle.
1: Now Erdogan himself uh, is pretty gung-ho about the result and uh, continues to emphasise the dangers uh, to Turkey posed by the uh, the attempted coup. Um, he's he's talking about renewing the state of emergency. Is that, is that going to happen today? And, and and possibly of restoring the death penalty?
3: Yeah, well, it, the parliament has to vote on that today. It's expected that will happen. It will be extended for another three months, bringing to so almost a year of, of the state of, of, of emergency which means that you know normal constitutional functions will be suspended uh, the government will be allowed to bypass any the parliament in order to enact uh, new new decrees uh, and and as you mentioned in, in terms of the death penalty this is something he's been it's been threatened for a long time and you know the, during the protests or during the, the I guess the demonstrations or the the gatherings after the failed coup last year there were quite a few chance, you know, from people and and supporters calling for the the return of the death penalty, which was was suspended uh, about 15 years ago in order that Turkey would come into line with the EU law in relation to its potential accession to to the European Union. Now he's using this, it seems, as as a way to appeal to a growing nationalist uh, sentiment here in Turkey. Particularly since since the failed coup now, but he you know it, generally he, he he oftentimes comes out with these kind of very kind of a lot of bluster and a lot of nationalist talk. You know he gave on on Sunday he gave two speeches uh, as the results came in or as they were finished up. Uh, the first was to uh, was a press conference in in Istanbul where he was quite conciliatory, emphasizing that this was a vote for Turkish people. And a few minutes later he was speaking to supporters outside in at a rally and he was. Far more, uh, far more gung ho in in terms of uh, singling out uh, Turkey's uh, alleged enemies, uh, Europe, and, and and so forth. So there's also the, this other issue, you know, that there might be a referendum regarding the continuation of accession ex- talks with the EU. Uh, but you know, I think you know, looking at it from an analyst perspective, you could say that these are kind of uh, things he's putting out there to try and. Uh, Ensure that uh, people feel that there's that there are a number of enemies in order that he can keep hold of this uh, this growing nationalist sentiment here in, in Turkey. I mean, for me at least, one of the most remarkable issues of the last uh, few months is that last couple of years is that he is he and the AK Party and the the government have essentially co-opted the nationalist vote away from the secular, the traditional secular and republican sectors of society. Which uh, would be more aligned? With, their worldview would, would be much closer to the opposition, the Republican People's Party. Traditionally, the AK Party and Erdogan were considered Islamists, and Islamism and religion was was something not for politics at all. But since they've restarted this war with uh, Kurds, with separatist Kurds, and of course, Kurd, the Kurdish issue for nationalists is a pretty much a red line. In that, you know, it's it's an anti-Turkish thing. Uh, he has co-opted that whole vote, and this seems to be. It seems to be the case that he you know he is this is what, how he has weakened the, the, the opposition he is taken away. he's using vocabulary that uh, that his opposition would normally have used and because he gets so much airtime and and, uh, and and so much media coverage, uh, people are being drawn to him by by, uh, by using this rhetoric.
1: Thank you very much, Stephen. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Lara Marlowe, and Stephen Starr to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conman. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, Soundcloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.